the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, number 260, for May 10th, 2010. Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab here from Durham, New Hampshire. I am Dave Hamilton. On the other end, of course, is John Efron in Freefall, Connecticut. But then back to you, Dave, is... That's right. Sitting right next to me is... I'm here, Pilot Pete. It's good to be here, guys. I feel like I've been gone forever. You have been gone forever. Bouncing all over the the place. Domestically this time. Oh, hey, you know. It's all right. Keeps you, keeps you, keeps you off the streets, right? Keeps me honest. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, John, we have far more than we'll ever get to today. I know we said mm-hmm. we'd do a cool stuff found today. Um, I, I, we can't make that promise anymore. <laughs> we, we've got a lot to go through. No, so. we got questions. We yeah, got we do. Questions. Yeah, and answers. We hope to have answers. Let's start with Larry, shall we? Shall we, John? Start with Larry. Yes. Good. All right. Larry says. I have around 1,500 individual contact records on my Mac housed in the address book. Over the years, these have been synced to innumerable devices such as multiple iPhones, non-Apple phones, and probably six or seven different other Macs. What has developed is that my, for many records, I will have the same home or work address repeated two or three times for the same individual in the same record. Uh, I know that I could go through and clean this up myself, but do you know of some utility that I could use to clean up my address book? They seem to have plenty of these sorts of utilities for iTunes, but I haven't seen anything for the address book. So this is yet one of those occasions where reading the question the second or third time, I actually uh, see more than I did the first time through. Um, Initially, uh, so so there is no facility to clean that up built into address book. There, There is a facility if you go to the card menu and choose clean up duplicates. That will merge any duplicate records based on first and last name that exist out in your Mac OS X address book. That's not going to help you with your specific question, Larry, though it's possible that you've actually got duplicate records. And in that case, yes, it would. But you might wind up. In fact, that might cause the exact problem you're seeing where you're starting to duplicate the actual uh, street address inside the uh, inside the record. And I don't know of anything that will clean that in particular up. Uh, but but there is that duplicate functionality uh, in address book. John? Yeah, uh, something I'll mention here, looking in the help for the uh, for the duplicates, is that they do have one thing that, that may help here. So it sounds like he, he needs to consolidate cards. Is that? No, no. He's got, uh, what he says here is he says, I, I have uh, many records. I have the same home or work address repeated two or three times for the same individual in the same record. So it's, you know, you might have, uh, you know, have Dave Hamilton in your dress book, John, and, and then you've got my home address and then you've got my home address and then you've got my home address uh, three times. So he wants to know, can I how can I clean that up? And that's not actually a problem I've seen a lot, but uh, but I don't know of any any Apple script or anything that's going to let you go through and clean that up. Um, I'm trying yeah, well, to, well, they have a way to merge cards, which depending on how the data is arranged here, it, it, it sounds like it's, yeah, I don't know if that's really going to do that's it. Not, no, that's not going to do it. Yeah. So there's, there, there are a couple of facilities in address book for dealing with duplicate, as I said, dealing with duplicate records, uh, right. but, but not, uh, not dealing with that. So if anybody out there has any thoughts on this, that would be a very helpful thing to, uh, to share with Larry. So, uh, any, any other thoughts on this, yeah, John? Yeah, that's nasty. Yeah. No, I, I've, I had something a while ago on the Palm called Undupe, which again was more in the dupe phase. But right. It would, it would detect whether uh, any records, and it could do like a thorough analysis and say, you know, these two records have a lot that are in common. Uh, it still amazes me how, you know, a lot of the programs are lacking in that sense. Is it either they repeat calendar events or contacts or something like that without warning you or... Uh, Yep. Well, even a, a fish shake at uh, Apple. I mean, you and I looked at the message it gives you if uh, you know if you try to merge things, and it's like, yeah, I found some things that have stuff that's the same. You want me to merge them? And it's like, which thing was it? Yeah, that's right. It, it will not tell you, nor will it tell you what it did if you if you tell it to merge them. So be careful. Uh, right below that, in the f- look for duplicates option in the in the card menu is a merge uh, option where you can pick two records and, and merge them. So if, if you know that you have 
uh, duplicate records. Again, that's not exactly Larry's problem, but if you know you have duplicate records, you can use that and manually merge them. And then at least, you know, what, uh, what it's doing. So, all right, moving on to Pat, Pat says, uh, I'm going to parse this a little bit here because this was in the midst of a personal email, but he said, uh, I recently got a thumb drive and wanted to use it for backups on my Mac. Nor previously, I was backing up to a zip drive. And what I would do is copy the file from my Mac to the zip drive and it worked just fine. Now I plug in the thumb drive. It mounts on the desktop. And when I copy the, uh, the files, it works great until I get to some of the historical stuff. At that point, I get an error that says name too long or includes characters the disk cannot understand. The names aren't very long, but I do know what it can't understand. It's likely all those blank icon symbols that I have stored on my drive. They were so cutesy at the time, but now they're blocking the backup. I have verified it by replacing the icon with normal file icons, but I don't have the energy to replace hundreds of them in my historical files. So, can you guys figure out how to replace all the icons with simple file icons that the disk can read? It would save me about 100 hours. All right, Pat. So, uh, let's solve the problem uh, a different way. We certainly could go through and replace all of the icon files, but better to simply make it so that your thumb drive is happy receiving them. Uh, because otherwise, we've got to build some sort of Apple script, and and it could get to be a real, a real chore. So... Uh, Typically, any thumb drive that you get is going to be formatted as FAT32. This is the file format that's common to Windows and also is workable on the Mac. It's not the Mac's native format, however. The Mac uses HFS Plus now. Uh, and prior to that, you used something called HFS, Hierarchical File System. HFS Plus and FAT32 do not share a common allowed character set for their file names. So chances are, Pat, you've got... Uh, a set of files that are using a character in them. And I don't know what that character is, but say, chances are you've got a file in there, or a character in those files that's not compatible with FAT32. And your Mac is doing its best to tell you this, but, uh, but may not be all that clear about it. It's also not clear about a solution. So uh, go ahead, Pete. Yeah, I just got a quick question. Yeah. When you're talking about that, it's not actually the character in the file that it can't understand, but the file name, right? Correct. Yeah, okay. So yeah. anything that's in the file itself can transfer it over. Correct. Yeah, okay. good okay. point. That's right. Yes, it's just in the file name. Yeah, exactly right. That's right. So uh, the, the, the idea is, you know, FAT32 is actually a great format for thumb drives, A, because manufacturers can just sell them universally and you don't have to buy it in Mac format or Windows format. And it's also really handy for us as Mac users because... We can copy files to a thumb drive and hand them to anyone. And at that point, it's universal. And this works great until it doesn't. And in Pat's case, it doesn't. And since he's using it for a backup, there's less chance that he's going to want to hand it to a Windows user to read the files. Uh, chances are he just wants to hold it in case something happens to the data on his Mac. So uh, the idea here is reformat that thumb drive as HFS plus, And now that you've got... Uh, uh, format parity between the Mac's hard drive and the thumb drive file names should be uh, compatible across both. Uh, so to do that, you open up disk utility, which is inside applications and utilities, uh, put the thumb drive in, you can put the thumb drive in before or after it doesn't matter. Uh, but uh, once you've got disk utility open, you should see the thumb drive. So highlight that volume. And uh, what you'll do is you'll highlight the volume on the thumb drive, which is You've got the thumb drive itself, and then below that and indented a little bit in a little hierarchical view, you'll see the volume on the drive. That's what you want to click on. So click on the volume on the thumb drive, then go over and click on the Erase tab uh, in the right-hand pane of the screen. Choose Mac OS X Extended Journaled uh, and give it a name. It can be the same name that the drive has now. Or, well, actually, I guess the Mac would probably call it Untitled. So I, I would recommend giving it a name that maybe matches whatever's written on the thumb drive or something that's going to make sense to you. Uh, then uh, look back and make sure before you click the next button, look back and make sure that you've got the thumb drive itself selected and not your hard drive or some other drive that's important to you. And then click erase. You will get a warning message. Uh, and then once you agree to that, it'll let you go. Note that this will remove any existing backups on that drive. You're wiping out the Windows uh, format and putting a Mac format or an HFS plus format onto this uh, onto this partition. So you will you will you will end up with something blank. And in the end, you should be able to copy all your files over. Make sense, John? Sounds great. 
Okay. <laughs> no, nothing. No, to I add. missed. No, not really. Okay. No, that's uh, that's pretty straightforward. Now, yep. um, uh, I did find one thing because I misunderstood this. I thought at some point, and I wonder if it, it, it was the case. Um, well, I was assuming that this was on at one point a Windows machine, and it was a mapping ah. uh, issue between DOS and Windows, which uh, I think is you 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 know you covered before the 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 um, valid characters for the different file systems are slightly different. And I I found something I've used it in the past. So it, it's more for when you're bopping between platforms, but it could be applicable if you're bopping between file systems. Sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, right. But it's something called Name Cleaner. Um, I'll link to it. Check it out. But it does, uh, it, it's more to pick out, you know, some weird DOS or, you know, the, the PC specific things and make them palatable to the Mac because, you know, uh, still to, to this day, we'll see this error, Dave, when trying to do batch operations, mostly with systems where we, you know, exchange data between platforms. Yeah. And it comes up and says, up oh, the copy stopped because, um, I didn't recognize this character in the file name. It's right. like, why, why don't you just figure it out and move? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I agree. Stupid computer. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think sometimes it'll say, well, you know, so, ignore ahead. all subsequent. I, I don't think for, for that sort of error. I mean, I haven't run into it for a while, but the last I remember is that it would kind of block the whole operation until you acknowledged. Yeah. Okay. You can't understand this character now deal with it your yeah. computer and that's that's what was happening to pat now my my question is uh would name cleaner work in reverse will it scrub mac os 10 file names and make them happier on the dos side i mean will it will it do both or is it only built to scrub fat 32 file names because if so then that would have answered pat's question itself although in the end what he really wanted was to not have to rename the files he just wanted to be able to back them up so you know we find, yeah. you know, it's a different solution, same, the different path, same, you know, eventual solution. So, yeah, it may have helped. I mean, it, it claims to do Mac to Windows, Windows to Mac. But, okay, well, know, there you go. Especially if you're going to the Mac direction, you could create something that's palatable. Yep. You know, it'll just toss it, I think, if it doesn't recognize it. So, uh, cool. All right. Uh, all right, let's do, uh, let's do Todd here. Let's listen to what Todd has to say. Hi, this is Todd in Wisconsin. I'm calling because my desktop keeps disappearing. I have um, I have the latest version of Snow Leopard, and I've tried resetting the Finder. I've logged out. I've logged back in. I've tried using a different user account, and for some reason, I cannot get anything on my desktop to appear. They show up fine in the Finder, but I am perplexed, and I'd appreciate your help. This is where you can cut me off. All right, and we will cut you off. All right, John, you said you've got some thoughts on this. Do you want to start with it? or? Uh, oh, I got a boatload here. All right, go I'll, ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll toss out one bone and then yep. you toss out another here. Okay. Um, Onyx, maintenance, rebuild, display of folder contents, otherwise known as DS Store. Oh. I knew there was something in there and I dug in and I found it. So again, that, that path here and what it does is removes all the uh, .ds underscore store files, which you know have a dot in front of them. So that means they're invisible normally. But they hold uh, icon view and, and other position information. So, one thought. Interesting. Okay. I, I got a bunch of others, but that that's just one that, you know, because, uh, again, Onyx does everything. And I think this is one thing that it, it's one of the few tools that can do that in a nice way. So Yep. Yep. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the possibility is that at, for some reason or at some point, the Mac thought it could display things outside of the size of window that it now can display things. So it's possible all the icons are actually there, but simply not appearing. And if that's the case, what you do is quit or hide all of your other apps, then go to the Finder and close all the windows in the Finder. So you are left with a blank desktop uh, and the Finder is the active app. Then go to the View menu and choose Cleanup. If the icons are there, but just not visible, that should bring them all in and uh, and make them happy. Uh, I don't, you know, without seeing the machine, it's impossible to say which of these solutions will work. So I, I think we should, you know, keep bouncing back and forth and, and offer up a couple of these. So go ahead, John. Okay. Here's another one. I ran into this, as you recall, I, I didn't know why, and I never figured it out and it went away, but my library folder inside my user directory would be invisible in that, you know, we, we, we would talk about, you know, solving certain problems, Dave, and you're like, well, John, go to your library folder. I'm like, it's not there. It's like, well, what do you mean it's not there? Of course it's there. I'm like, it's not there. I go to the terminal and I'd look and it was there. The thing is, there's an invisible bit. And for whatever reason, I don't know what was doing it, but this bit kept getting flipped. And um, that there is something, actually I have an article that uh, 
uh, Ted Landau wrote a while ago that uh, kind of highlights a few of these things. But one is something that I still see in the latest developer tools, and something called set file. And one of the things it does is it sets the invisible bit on a folder. I'm wondering if for whatever stupid reason huh. that bit is getting flipped on the desktop folder. Yeah, that's possible. Just the thought, or if the permissions are weird, I'll, I'll toss out two there. Is it, uh, you know, the, and you can see that in the terminal if you want, I guess. Yep. Um, just make sure it's, uh, you know, if you're in your home folder, you do an LS that you see DRWX at the beginning, that those are the proper uh, permissions for your desktop folder. Yep. Yep. Cool. Right, more. Okay. Yeah, there is more. Um, so if that doesn't do it, and, and I'm calling an audible here, I think it's worth kind of along those same lines. If the Mac thinks that it has more screen real estate than it does currently, then you also can have a problem, right? So uh, go to system preferences displays and look and see if the Mac thinks that it's got a second monitor attached to it. Uh, it's possible. It thinks that sure, you know, there's another monitor that uh, that's attached. And if there is, uh, then, you know, try and figure out what's causing that. And again, it's hard to say that's a, kind of its own problem. Right. But, uh, but you know, that, that would cause this same issue because it thinks, Oh, I can draw stuff elsewhere. Uh, another way to check for that is to run your mouse along the edge of the screen. Uh, you know, and while you're along the top, push, push up, and while you're along the right side, push right, left, push left, and bottom, push bottom. And if the mouse disappears, your Mac thinks it has more real estate than it's showing you. Uh, so that that would be something along those lines. The other thing you could try, again, in that same vein, is once you get to the desktop, try typing the name of a file that you know to be out there. You should be able to open up a window and navigate to your desktop that way and see it. But, uh, you know, so type the name of a file you know to be out there. And then once you've typed enough of it, hit command I and see if it'll do a get info on the file. Cause that'll tell you, yeah, it, it thinks it's displaying it. You're just not seeing it in the window you have or in the view you have. So that would, that, you know, that would be another one. So like, I, I got the, nice. I can go all day on these. So, you know, uh, I got, well, I got another one here right, as, as unlikely as it could be. Go to your finder. Yeah. In the finder menu, there's preferences in the general um, section. Uh, there's a thing that says show these items on the desktop. You may just want to make sure that at least one of those are checked. That's a good point. <laughs> well, just as a starting point yeah. to make sure. Now, I'm not thinking that it will, but it, it's a sanity check to make sure that you can display anything on the desktop. Now, right. Of course, desktop is one thing, right. but um, to me, that's another one. Yep. Is that, and I usually have them all checked. So any any you know network or other external disks, there's usually a icon on the desktop somewhere. So just to, just to give you a warm fuzzy. Yeah. Something's working because um, that'll show the hard disk, external disk, uh, you know, CDs, servers, all that stuff. All right. Uh, back, back to it could be a, a preference file issue, right? If you go into your home library preferences, uh, remove com.apple.finder.plist and com.apple.folderactions.plist just to be sure. Uh, and then and then you, you're going to have to reboot your Mac. That's the safest thing. You could log out and log back in uh, as well. But but at least a log out, if not a reboot, uh, should bring that back around. Uh, so that's I got, I got one more. Do you have more, John? No, I'm, I'm out. man. OK, well, this one's the crazy one. And I've run into this. I've never seen it <laughs> cause this problem, but I have seen it cause very, very strange problems. Uh, so go into system preferences and then into sharing. And make sure of two things. One, that the computer name is not blank. Uh, that'll cause some funky things. And there are reports mm. that it will have caused this in the past. Uh, and number two, that it only includes ASCII characters zero through nine and then A through Z uh, lowercase and A through Z capital and a, and a space. Those are the only characters that Apple officially allows in the file name. We can put a knowledge base article out there or in the computer name. I'm sorry, not a, not a file name, a computer name. So, uh, so that, that may be another part of the issue. And I would actually recommend removing any spaces from there as well, even if it'll let you put them in because that, that can get funky with URLs and, and network stuff. So, uh, so, you know, zero through nine and then A through Z, either lowercase or caps and any mix thereof. So that's, uh, that's all I got. Oh, and one other thing that I couldn't find a knowledge base article about, but I, again, have seen evidence that it's, it's worthwhile to, to not do is make sure your hard drive itself 
is not named with just numbers. Make sure you have um, alpha characters in your hard drive name, too. I, I don't know if that's going to help with this problem, but it's a good general practice. So. Hmm. Anything else on this one, John? We've, no, I, think I think we've run the gamut on it. Exhausted this one, yes. That's right. All right. Our first sponsor for this show is Bare Bones. And today I want to talk about BB Edit 9.5. 9.5 adds a, a great feature and a, actually a, it adds a ton of stuff, but, but it, it has one big thing uh, in addition to everything that's cool about 9.0, which we'll talk about. And the cool new feature in 9.5 is that it has a live search menu or a live search option. Uh, it, the, the menu uh, kind of has been replaced by uh, an in-window search bar, s- similar to Safari, right? So if you're looking for something in your, in your code or in a document, you can, you can load it into BB Edit, type into the search bar, just like you would in Safari or anything else. Uh, you know, Apple-like mail would, would be the same way, address book. Uh, and now it's going to start, like Safari does, highlighting all the instances of whatever you've typed in the page and you can just kind of bounce around and uh and see what's going on so bb edit 9.5 adds that bb edit 9.0 bb edit itself is a text editor uh but and and i say that knowing that that that's sort of a loaded statement it's way more than just a text editor uh it will allow you to write uh Code. You can write HTML code. Uh, you can write just general text files, and I use it for that too, actually. But uh, any, any, really, any programming language that you can think of, they've already got built into BB Edit a parser that will auto format based on whatever programming language you're in. So uh, if you've got a, uh, you know, if you've got a function that starts, I, I see this all the time with my PHP stuff. If I'm, if I'm loading in, I see a function start, I can twist that function close. So all I see is the, is the, uh, the beginning, the, the entry line to the function, but I don't have to see the function itself. So you can really kind of collapse your code down and make it very efficient to look at. And then when you want to drill down somewhere, you just kind of twist open the little triangles, just like you have in the finder. And, uh, and you can start seeing, you know, all the, the, uh, the components of any one function or, 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 you know, subroutine that you've created. So very, very cool stuff. Uh, BB edit nine introduced the, uh, scratch pad, which is a, uh, it, it's a, the contents of the scratch pad persist across multiple sessions and you don't have to save it. It's automatically saved. So if you've got stuff that you're using and you just want to quit out, uh, the scratch pad stays there. The other thing that BB edit nine does is it offers a, uh, it's a, it's a, not a quit option. I'm trying to even think of the name of it and I don't have it in front of me, but essentially if you go to the file menu, you can choose quit or you can exit. And what exit will do is it'll, it's a suspend rather it suspends BB edit. So you can have a bunch of files that are unsaved, uh, including a lot of files open. Uh, and when you suspend it, it quits BB edit, but it saves that state so that when you open it up again, you're right back to where you came from. So if you need to do a reboot or something and you don't want to kind of rebuild your work environment, you do it this way and it works out great. Again, this is BB edit from bare bones software. And Oh, and on that, I've even mapped my command queue to that. So now I don't even have to think about it when I quit BB edit, it suspends it. And, uh, and I know I'm golden. I don't have to worry about saving all those kind of random text files that I've left open and unsaved. BB Edit 9.5 is available for $125 from barebones.com, but you get a 30-day trial. So download it first before you buy. If you have a previous version, you can upgrade for 30 bucks, And that's all available at barebones.com. I think it's time to move on to Neil, right, John? We have good good SSD question from Neil, right? Yes. Neil writes... I have a question regarding SSD. You've mentioned in the past that it's bad juju to defrag solid state drives as they have limited write and rewrite cycles. My question is what happens to the drive and more importantly, the data when the drive hits the rewrite limits, does it just stop working? Does it start to show less and less storage as time go by? What goes by? What happens? All right. Uh, you you, you want to take this one, John, or you want me to, you want me to throw out the, the general theory and then you've got some, some specifics to, to pepper in. Is that right? Oh, go ahead. Hmm. Trying to think how to answer it here. All right, I, I, I'll start with the, with the general. So the idea is, by the, and the reason that defragging is bad is exactly what, what Neil said, right? There is uh, a limited, as, and this is true of any flash RAM, right? Any flash memory. There is a limited number of times that every cell or every block uh, 
on the device in the in the RAM. So either the drive or your little flash flash drive that you put in your camera or any of those. It's all the same. Uh, they there's a limited number of times that each block in there and there might be hundreds of thousands of blocks or more. Uh, there's a limited number of times that you can write to each of those. Now, that number uh, it used to be low. It used to be about 10,000 times. Now, I think we're up to above 300,000 times. Uh, so it effectively making the, the mean time between failure for an SSD drive a whole lot longer than than a traditional hard drive would be. But there is this limit. So you do need to be careful, I believe. And John, you're going to correct me if I'm wrong on this or you're going to expound on it. If uh, even once a drive or any any piece of flash ram once it hits its maximum rights it will stop being you cannot you can no longer change the status of it but mm -hmm. i believe it's still readable uh certainly long past that if not forever is that right okay that's my understanding is that eventually the drive will get into a state where it just throws in the towel and says there's the either i can't write properly or as you pointed out dave that you know it'll decrease the uh I would assume it would start mapping things out, or it may just get to a point saying, you know what, there's too much wrong here. Okay. I'm going to stop. You should always be able to read from it. It's just going to lock itself to the uh, to the last state. But um, Okay. All right. And then one thing I wanted to mention um, that, that kind of uh, expands on this is that especially with the SSDs, one thing that they're doing. So one, yeah, of course, we, we, we've discouraged, you know, the defrag and all that because it really doesn't work the same way on one of these drives. And I think one of the things that what a lot of these drives do which can kind of defeat the purpose of a defrag is uh, is what's called wear leveling, which we've discussed it in the past. But the the thing is, is that each of those memory cells has a, li a fixed lifetime. And I, I think with some of the initial controllers, their strategy for picking where to do things may not have been optimal. So the problem is, uh, as the term implies, is that you want to level the amount of wear because if you start clobbering parts of the drive prematurely or you start focusing on them for whatever reason you either wrote a bad, bad algorithm or the OS doesn't quite know how to deal with the, the disk properly um, they want to try to smooth that as much as possible because um, I think as I mentioned before you may get to a point where if you wear out certain parts of the drive too much it's just going to give up prematurely without you actually getting the, the maximum as, uh, as you point out Dave you know up to I've seen 100,000 cycles 300,000 I can believe now um, yeah. Yeah. I think I, you know, I did some research. It looks like they're there. Some of the newer ones are at 300,000 right cycles. <laughs> yeah. Which is a lot. You okay there, Pete? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, do you disagree with our 300,000 fi find? Uh, my experience has been 300,000, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That number though, it seems to me that it's, it's virtually the lifetime of the drive. I mean, you know, obviously yeah. you don't abuse it, but right. but th that's a lot of rights. Yeah, well, they, you know, what do they say? With a hard drive, you know, don't trust a hard drive past three years if it's got mission-critical stuff yeah. on it, right? Eventually it's going to fail. I mean, certainly we we all have drives that have lasted far longer than that. But uh, but with an SSD drive, I think, you know, you can you can probably go five to ten years before you get to the don't trust it anymore point. So, it, you know, there's... There's, there's a, it's a, it's a different, if it's a different animal from a, a physical drive. So, yeah, you know, I'm curious because I think you and I have heard that both mechanical and electronic drives, uh, if you leave them sitting around for, let's say a hundred years, they may not work anymore for whatever reason, either they atrophy or, uh, you know, not, not literally, but. Well, what we you know. found, we, we, this was a couple of years ago and I'd have to go back to the notes, but, and I don't know how this impacts SSD drives because when we were talking about this, SSDs really weren't, they certainly weren't mainstream. Uh, and that is that if you leave a, a hard drive, a, a traditional mechanical hard drive on the bench or on a shelf for more than six months, the gravitational pull of the earth will start to pull some of the, uh, <laughs> some of the bits out of alignment. Yeah. And and so it, it is important if you've got data that you're essentially archiving to a hard drive that you spin that drive up. Uh, you know, I, I, they say once every six months, I I go once every three just to be safe, you know, uh, and, and just move it around so that those those bits aren't sitting in exactly the same orientation uh, in terms of their relationship to the, you know, the Earth's core, if you will. Uh, or the you know the earth itself so yeah it's pretty interesting we had we had quite a few people write in about that and i'm sure we will now again which is which is cool but uh but 
but yeah, there's there's something, and I guess that there's no reason that wouldn't impact Flash, right? Well, Flash is a memory technology where there's a charge somewhere. I can yeah. imagine it lasts forever, right? I mean, everything, you know, I mean, every type of media that we've seen, you know, most is magnetic, of course, floppies. Right. Even, you know, I mean, CDs and DVDs we've seen, they rot usually because of the dyes and all that. But here I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a physical phenomenon. The, the charge, I don't think, could be retained indefinitely. Right. Right. Cool. All right. Uh, let's move on to Jeff. Jeff, uh, Jeff has a loaded question. Uh, he says, I've got a broad question for you. And honestly, one that you can't answer for me but I'm hoping you can give me the tools to answer it on my own. And Jeff, we will. And hopefully we'll give everyone the tools to at least ask the right questions. I currently have a 2.4 gigahertz core two duo MacBook pro with four gigabytes of Ram uh, running snow leopard. It's about three years old and is working just fine. That said three years is a long time. And yes, I do love the glimmer and shine of a new laptop. So the question I'm trying to answer is this. When should I go new? I want to see and feel a real difference. I've been reading a bit and listening to your podcast, and I think the relevant issues are the change from the Core 2 Duo to the new i5 or i7 chips. And can you explain why the max processor speed went down? Uh, I understand it's still faster, so yes, we will. And the change from 667 megahertz DDR2 to 1066 megahertz DDR3. Are there additional major issues that really affect performance? Which of these is most important? Uh, I'm leaning towards waiting, but I may not make it a whole year for another MacBook Pro update. All right. So uh, he's right. We can't answer this because no, it, it's a there it's, is no right answer. I can well, answer it. Go get a new one now. You know you want it. <laughs> well, it's a pizza bad I, influence. <laughs> I fully support that as a stockholder. That's but, right. Um, yeah. I guess the initial uh, the initial question to me, Dave would be, yes, the processor speeds and the memory speeds, as he mentioned here, and all of those things, will always get faster. Um, And three years is a good benchmark that I've seen used by a lot of people in both corporations and individuals is that, you know, you notice things getting sluggish. But I think what what you got to do, and I think what we're going to suggest is here's some of the tools to help you figure out, you know, if you are taking – if you can go farther with a newer machine than your current one. And so, so some of the guidelines that I would think about, like for example, today, um, you know, I was doing some compilation work um, with Xcode. Uh, I have a, you know, pretty fast mechanical hard drive and, and uh, six gigs of RAM. And here's the thing that I noticed. So here's what I suggest. Take some of the things that you do often and see which part of the system is getting stressed out. For example, running the compiler is, as long as it was compiling code, which the thing is on my machine, it's, you know, similar to his, um, it has a pretty good amount of horsepower. And the thing is, for most projects, I mean, they weren't large projects, but it would maybe compile for five, 10 seconds. And the processor was pegged at 100% each. Yep. But it only took five seconds. Right. Um, the hard drive light was on, which meant that maybe a faster hard drive or an SSD. Now, uh, and even the, um, so, you know, there, there, there are a few things you can look at. One, so get something like iStat menus or menu meters. Look at your processor. Does that get maxed out? Look at your memory. Does that start, you know, growing huge? And especially are you doing page outs? And then, um, you know, the third thing is hard drive activity is are, are you pegging either the read or the write? And by looking at those, which, if any of them are getting maxed out, um, which these tools can help you with, that helps you decide what you need to do. Maybe you just need, like in my case, going from four to six gigs made a world of difference. I'm, I'm right. Um, you know, not swapping out nearly as much as I did. Uh, the processor is not much I can do about, but uh, it's rare that I, so I could argue maybe I could use a processor upgrade because when it does compile it, you know, it pegs the processor. Uh, on the other hand, as I mentioned, it's it's not, you know, I don't have projects at this point that take hours to compile. Sure. <laughs> it, right. No, that's a good point. No. And that's that's exactly the way you have to look at it. And and, you know, in, in this situation, John, it may be that you don't need the you don't need the processor from a new machine you know the your hard drive is plenty fast you you may simply need more ram and if your machine won't allow you to put more ram in then upgrading to one of the new macbook pros which max out at eight gigs of ram uh may in fact be the right answer right i mean you may just need the ability to spend more money on your computer right and and the new platform lets you do that so (laughs) 
Well, I mean, you know, sometimes that's what it that's what it takes. Officially, you and I are maxed out at four gigs, but our machines, as as you've proven, mm-hmm. uh, you can you can bump it up and put one four gig chip in and with a two gig chip, and now you're up to six. Did you uh, do that yet? Or? No, I haven't. Oh, I, I I checked, and RAM prices had gone gone up again. So I'll just I'll wait till they do. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the thing to check is, is, you know, exactly that watch iStat, watch menu meters and see, um, a lot of times the thing that slows you down is external to the computer, right? If you're doing a lot of, uh, you know, downloads, well, that's your internet connection, right? And, and certainly in the days when, uh, when we all went, you know, and made the migration from dial up to some sort of high speed connection, I, you know, I, I remember people saying, oh, I don't need a high speed connection because, uh, you know, we never use the Internet. It's like, well, you may never use the Internet because it's really slow. And, you know, there's a reason to make that move. And and that can make your computer seem faster because now data is coming in faster along those same lines. Sometimes it's between the chair and the keyboard. If the typist is very slow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, if you quadruple the speed of the computer it's not going to matter so uh so you know that's the answer the, the, to quickly revisit the uh the core 2 duo versus the i5 and the i7 the big difference on the laptop side is that the i5 and the i7 support hyper threading which gives you the ability to run twice as many threads uh on the machine uh but uh and and, and that essentially means twice as many instructions Although hyperthreading is not the same as multiple cores, so uh, so you've still got two cores, but now those cores can hyperthread, so you can actually run four things in theory at once. But the hyperthreaded cores are only about fifty percent uh, boost, as opposed to a you know, or a hyperthreaded model is only about a fifty percent boost. So you're you're you know, pre CPU wise, the i five and the i seven are about fifty percent faster than their their predecessors. Uh, and that's because of that hyper threading. You can go back to, I think it was show 260 or maybe 258 where we, we dug a little bit deeper into that. So, Yeah. And another thing to close out, I don't do a lot of graphics, but you know, these uh, portables uh, have different graphic chipsets. I think, and I was checking mine out for uh, solving a, a, another issue. And I think I have a GeForce 8000 series with 512 megs VRAM. Um, okay. You know, yeah. um, if you're doing a lot of graphics work, then maybe that's your bottleneck. And I don't know off the top of my head how you measure that. I guess that would be pretty much internal to the tool, either Photoshop. You know, I, I guess it measures frames per seconds or or no. Well, look at your processor. Yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to think um, it just occurred to me if you're either a gamer or big into, you know, 3D modeling and stuff like that. Um, that may be a reason to to upgrade and yeah. have a good answer. Uh, yeah. At this yeah. moment on, on how to measure that. I'll dig up some tools, but I found a few that'll, you know, kind of give you an idea of how stressed out your uh, graphic hardware is. Well, check your, uh, oh, I know how, check your uh, temperature of your GPU. <laughs> that, that's actually, I was thinking that. Yeah. If you, you know, if you see that starting to go up, then you know, you're using your GPU a lot, but that's a, that's a, a lagging indicator, right? Uh, if right. you're, if you're only pegging the GPU for 10 seconds at a time here, 20 seconds at a time there, you're not necessarily going to see that, uh, you know, this, that, that it, it's not like watching CPU usage, mm-hmm. right? So you'd have to use it probably for yep. minutes at a time for, in order for the, the temperature yeah. to bump. Dave, right. Pete made this crazy suggestion. Oh, we're going to talk about our second sponsor here, which is Citrix with go to assist express. Now the idea here is you are sitting in your home or your, your office and you've got either a client or a friend or a family mother member who's having trouble with their computer. Now you've got one or two choices. You can get in your car. Well, actually you get three choices. You can get on the phone and go through that very uh, frustrating experience. And it's mutually frustrating. The person on the other end is just as frustrated, if not more so than you are uh, of playing the operator game. And they're going to tell you what they, they think you need to, to know. And you're going to ask them, what you think they need to tell you. And of course you're missing out, right? We've, we've all been through this either on one side of the equation or the other, where there's just a communication gap, trying to solve a problem. The information's not getting through. Everybody gets frustrated. 
So then you have, so we've ruled that choice out. Now you want to get in your car. Okay, so now you got to drive over to the person's house. If they live within, you know, driving distance that's relatively close, it's not terrible. You get to see them. Maybe you get a free lunch out of the deal because you helped them with your with their computer. But, uh, you know, that that takes time. And, and uh, sometimes for a little two-minute fix, that's not the right option, especially if they're on the other side of the country or the other side of the world. So we've ruled that out. That leaves us with GoToAssist Express. And the idea is... You send you log into your GoToAssist Express account uh, and you can go to GoToAssist.com slash Gab to get a free 30 day trial. So you go there, you sign up. It takes all of about, what, four minutes, maybe. Uh, and then you get a link. You, you create a new session and you get a link. You can email that link. You can read that link to someone over the phone. You send them that link. And then you sit and wait for them to go to that link in their browser and authenticate. And by authenticate, really, all they're going to do is say, yes, I'm going to go ahead and let, uh, you know, so and so into my computer. So uh, now once they authenticate, bam, your screen opens up and now you see their screen on your screen and your mouse and your keyboard work to remote control this. No mucking with firewalls. You notice I didn't mention any of that. And that's because. It just works. They're initiating this, the connection from their end. You're initiating from your end. Go to assist is doing the magic in the middle to connect you. And that traverses all these firewalls and all that really, really well. And this allows you to control their computer. They can see what you're doing. They can even stop you if they want. And the problem gets solved. Again, this is go to assist express from Citrix. Go to assist.com slash gab. And uh, let's let's uh, let, we've had a couple of questions about Dropbox here. Uh, one was in relation to the last uh, couple of shows ago, John, I mentioned on my trip to Washington, D.C. That I needed to have my laptop in order to get all these TV shows that I'd converted from my Dropbox synced to my iPad. Uh, and a couple of people suggested a couple of different options. Uh at the time, there was no Dropbox app for the iPad. I could run the iPhone one, but it wouldn't go, you know, full screen, at least at, at decent resolution. Uh, but now there is a Dropbox app for the iPad. And in fact, it works. Uh, it will play any video file that you could play otherwise on the iPad. And so if you put the file in your uh, in your Dropbox, I would recommend once you launch the app, you have the ability. And this is true on the iPhone or the iPad to click a favorites button. Uh, you can star that and it'll download it and keep it on your iPad. So you don't have to re-download it every time with a, you know, TV show or movie where that's, you know, you're talking about multiple gigabytes that can start to, you know, you get to be a real drag to have to re-download all the time. So, so yes, that works, but there's one problem with it. And that's that if you then remove the file from your Dropbox, even if you've saved it as a favorite, on the Dropbox app on your iPad, it goes away. Magically, poof, it disappears the next time you try. So that's doable, but you've got to manage things properly. There is, however, another app called GoodReader. If, if you're going to buy only one app for your iPad, I highly recommend GoodReader. I, I can't remember how much it is, Pete. It's like a dollar? Yeah, it's 99 cents. Okay. All right. So you, you've already bought it, right? You're not thinking about this this decision anymore. And you haven't even heard what it is, but I'll tell you. Oh, it's so magic. Yep. And uh, so what GoodReader does is it it lets you, first of all, it registers itself as like an application helper for lots of different document types. So if somebody sends you a PDF in mail or a pages document or a word document in mail, you can open it up in GoodReader right from mail. There'll be a little thing in the upper right hand corner. You click the button and it magically transfers it to this app, which is really cool. I think it's cool that Apple allows it and it's cool that GoodReader did it. Uh, the other thing is you can connect it to your iDisk, to your Dropbox and to just about any other kind Google of server. Documents. Yep. Google Docs. That's right. Yep. So you could. And this works. I tried this. I connected it to my Dropbox. I downloaded the movie file from the Dropbox into GoodReader. Now I can delete it from my Dropbox. It doesn't matter. It's it's in GoodReader and it's staying there until I delete it from there. And it does movies and you can do full screen and all that stuff. What's really cool and what would have worked on my trip is once I downloaded into GoodReader, GoodReader itself can become a server and you can it turns itself into a Wi-Fi server. So I could have connected with, you know, say my daughter's laptop. If she wanted to have the same show on her uh, laptop, it uh, you set up GoodReader as a server. You just click a little box, tap a little box, whatever it is. 
and uh, and boom, out it goes. So uh, you can connect over the web and download files and uh, and upload files even. So so yeah, that that would work. Either the Dropbox app or Goodreader would uh, would have worked to watch huh. watch movies, and I would not have needed my laptop at that point, which is pretty darn have, cool. Now, have you tried? There's something I tried which gives you some of this, or at least pieces of it, called Discover. Not to be confused with the Discover credit card app. It's like, okay. Why did you have to come up with such a terrible? <laughs> but, but I think it does. It does something similar. It's not so much a reader, but it, it it includes a file server which will give you a URL that people on your local network can go to. Okay. Um, but it also, from what I recall, will. And I think what these apps are doing is that they're taking advantage of parsers that are built into the iPhone itself. So it knows how to look at PDFs. It knows how to look right. at Word docs. Oh, yeah. And, and and from what I recall, this app did kind of the same thing. It would let you, you know, share docs, but also if you if you double-clicked on them, it would be like, oh, well, I'm going to hand this off to the PDF parser because it knows how to do that. Right. And and that's um, what this is doing. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yep. But it, but it's a, it's a nice little file store. And again, the big benefit nice. of, of Goodreader is its ability to pull uh from you know all these other offline or online sources cloud sources mm-hmm. if you will yeah and, and let me throw in there i was telling dave on skype there but as a pilot you can use this thing as a uh, as an electronic flight bag i have the ability to download my pdf charts my approach plates that kind of stuff as long as you're updated and current and that kind of stuff Oh, it's beautiful. You're not flipping through papers. Now, granted, you aren't going to have all your alternates and that sort of thing available in the event of an emergency, then you still you need your chip kit with you. But but uh, having your uh, def- your departure destination and alternate all right there just at, at the flip of a th- finger, those kind of things, just it, and, and in so many other applications in life, everywhere else, it's going to cut down on the amount of papers you need to keep with you. It's beautiful. It, it is, yeah. And the size of the iPad is, is what, you know, I... I, I've heard a lot of work. people people say that you know oh it's just an overgrown iPhone okay that, that fine point taken that's great however I'm much happier reading a document on an overgrown iPhone than I am on an iPhone <laughs> exactly right? you know it's a much different experience so uh, yeah so Goodreader is cool and it it definitely would have solved that that Dropbox issue uh, all right should we answer are, are we good on this John or do you got do you got more on this show oh, cool okay let's answer Mike's question about Dropbox then right it's Mike yeah it's Mike. Find it here. We're getting to you, Mike. We're finding you. Hey, John and Dave. It's Mike from Newburyport. Um, thanks for everything. Anyway, I was just listening to episode 259, and you were talking about Dropbox, and I was just thinking, does Time Machine back up Dropbox, or does it not? You were talking about having a backup of your Dropbox, but then you didn't say how to do that. So... Um, yes. Next. No, <laughs> uh, that's an easy one. I, I agree with you, Dave. Uh, the answer is yes. The, there's, there's no discussion. We should, uh, move on. Uh, I actually, there, there, well, there maybe is, we should dig in just a little bit here. Just so, a wee bit. Cause so the, where is Dropbox? I guess Dave would be my question is where is the content for Dropbox located? I think that answers the question. That's a yeah that, to you or, or no, I'll, I'll take that yeah. shirt. Yeah. So Dropbox by default, and we'll assume that you haven't moved it around. If you have, you know what you're doing. Uh, by default, Dropbox is in a folder called Dropbox in your home folder. And that's it. And we've mentioned it before. It is nothing more than a folder on your hard drive that the Dropbox app looks at and does some some nice syncing with. Right. That. But that's it. It's not a separate disk image. It's just a folder in your home folder and it's called Dropbox. Um, so yes, time machine backs it up just like it would any other files on your Mac. The important right. thing to note though, is that if you've got, let's say you've got uh, three Macs and you've got Dropbox on all three of them. Well, if you have all of them backing up with time machine, you're going to have three backups of your Dropbox locally on your time capsule or whatever it is you're backing up to. I recommend only uh, on two, you know, on all but one of those Macs, I recommend going into Time Machine and excluding the Dropbox directory. So you're not getting multiple backups of the same thing over and over and over again. But otherwise, yes, it will back it up almost to a fault. You know, I think I'm uh, maybe one or two, maybe not every location, but but because no, I'm surprised you said that day, because I think we've talked in the past about, you know, trying to have 
you know, some redundancy in your backup plan. So, so probably not every machine, depending on how many machines you have, maybe not every machine. Yeah. I, I back up one. On. Okay. Cause I have two machines yeah. and they both are on the same Dropbox account yeah. and they each have their own time machine or time capsule or time machine. Right. I'm okay with that, but, but I think I see what you're saying. It could get excessive, especially, you know, if you, if you get 10 gigs or 20 gigs well, or that's, much space. That's it. Right. Yeah. No, I've um, got, like I said, I've got three machines and I skip it on two of them and it backs up on one. As Pete's pointing out, Dropbox also, you know, it's back. Your stuff's backed up in the cloud, too. And you can sure. undelete for 30 days, which depending on the size of your time machine volume, may be longer than you have with time machine. So. Right. Now, uh, I think what's important to point out, though, is that, and, and you know, I didn't quite grok this when I first started using Dropbox. It wasn't clear to me because they kind of make it transparent, which is good. It, it, it wasn't clear to me where everything was located. Was it in the cloud or was it on my local machine or both? And of course, and as we just covered, the answer is both. Right. So even if you disconnect forever from Dropbox, uh, not disable and delete, that's another thing which actually I've found, you know, as, right. as I was, uh, you know, working on, I think, you know, formatting some old data and stuff like that. I'm like, Oh, look at that. There's all the stuff there. Right. Um, so you got to keep that in mind is that yes, it is a, a copy. And I think as we suggested, it's, it's subject to all of the rules that any other file in your home folder is subject to. Yep. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's just, it's just a folder. That's right. Cool. All right. Uh, let's, um, let's talk about, we talked about sleep a lot recently and, uh, and in the last show, and we have a question here. I'm going to reverse the order of the agenda, John. Uh, and I know you okay. I'm okay. Okay. But they're both in front of me. I'm, I'm cool. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> we, we talked about, uh, LA dude, uh, int- emailed in and asked, you know, I know I can dim my display, but I still see things dancing around on the screen. Is there a way? And we suggested, uh, you know, maybe put a black picture up or do something that does it. And then tons of you came out and said, that'll work. Yeah. But there is actually a way to turn the display off without, uh, you know, without having to jump through all those hoops. And uh, so we'll play Jeff's comment here. Hey guys, this is Jeff from Madison, Wisconsin. I was listening to Mac Geek Gab 259 right now and uh, about the guy that has a problem with not being able to put his display to sleep by having the computer still on. Uh, I had the same problem with my iMac and I found the solution to be pressing control shift and eject and that will uh, turn off the display but the computer won't go to sleep. Uh, So this is where you cut me off. All right. So that's awesome. And it does. It works totally fine. And I I got a flashlight out, John, and I held it up to make sure it wasn't just dimming the display down. Oh, but it, it, right. it definitely works. Yep. yep. And um, yeah, it works on my G5 on uh, Leopard and also on my MacBook Pro with uh, Snow Leopard. So, yep. uh, the, the so one... it's probably been buried in, in OS X for a while, but one of those you know secret handshakes that you just kind of learn about by listening to a show like ours. The one problem you might have, though, is if you're using a third-party keyboard that does not have anything <laughs> mapped to eject. No, really, right? But No, I'm agreeing with you. I'm like, well, isn't that an extended function? And it's like, no, it's not a function key. Nope. It's not. I'm looking. I got. The, I have one of the not the big battleship keyboards, but yeah, this thing maxes out at F15, and then yeah, there's this as far as I know proprietary eject key in the yep. upper right. So if you can't, if you don't have an eject key and you can't map something to it, uh, what you can do is use Expose uh, to set one of the screen corners to be put the display to sleep. And that invokes the same magic on the back end that actually sleeps the display. Hmm. Um, so, so you do have an option there. If you, if you can't get there with a, with a keystroke, you can get there with a mouse uh, like anything. It's very sensitive. So if something nudges your mouse or you, you know, a key is tapped on the keyboard, it, it all hope is lost. It, you know, the, the screen wakes up. So your mileage may vary with, with the results of this, but it definitely works. You know what occurred to me? What's that? I think I know what's behind a lot of these waking up sleeping issues. What's that? I want to know how many of these people that are, uh, how many of the people that have written in or called in or whatever to us. I want to know how many are cat owners. <laughs> all I'm, all I'm saying. Yeah. I think your pets are tormenting you. I think that's behind a lot of this. That may, may be right. That may be true. Because I see how, I mean, especially cats love things that are nice and warm and 
Mm-hmm. Like a you know soothing sound, and I think most Macs fall into that category. So yep, I think your pets are messing with you. Well, you got a bunch of cats. We have two. I don't know how often they uh, they you know mix it up with the computer. Uh yeah they uh, yeah they crawl across the desk every now and then you know in the house so yeah mm-hmm. uh, certainly they could wake up you know if, if I had a computer in the bedroom I'm sure I would be much more aware of the cats you know knocking into the mouse or whatever. Which kind of leads into, uh, are, are we done with Jeff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it definitely leads into Brad's question, which may Wasn't be the last one me? for the show. It is Wasn't clever. clever? Yeah. Mm. All right. So Brad writes, I've been trying to figure out a problem that's been around for a while now, and that it's my MacBook Pro likes to turn itself on during the day. Before I leave for work in the morning, I completely shut down my MacBook Pro only to find it up and running when I get home. I have turned off Wake on LAN as I am connected to an Apple Airport Extreme router via Ethernet cable. Is the airport extreme turning it on? I've also turned off allow Bluetooth devices to wake this computer as I have an Apple Bluetooth mouse. I don't have any schedules set up under energy saver preferences. I'm not sure what it could be. Any advice or suggestions? Of course, certainly welcome. So, yeah, this is interesting. I mean, your cat would need to be hitting the uh, the the um, the power button on the computer you know, there's a there's a couple of things and I'm going to throw one thing out there, John, and we can bounce this back and forth. But, you know, there's also a button in the energy a checkbox in the energy saver that says turn this machine on um, after a power outage. Right. And I'm, I'm, I can't remember exactly what it says. I'll I'll mm-hmm. find it. Uh, no, you're right. That's a, in event of power failure. It'll that, restart the machine. That's right. Uh, you know, and I wonder if perhaps it's say yeah, start automatically after a power failure. I wonder if. Maybe the power at home is flickering and bringing this, bringing this up. Now, I mean, it's a MacBook Pro, so it really shouldn't care about power. It's used to seeing power come and go constantly. That's not going to wake it up. Uh, so maybe that, you know, maybe that's, that's the wrong path to head down here. But, uh, but this is an interesting one. So I, I've got some other ideas, but, but take it, John, and we'll see, we'll see where we go with it. Well, one of the thoughts I have here, and actually I'm going to examine it right now, and I'm actually restarting a machine here. Okay. Uh, hopefully it'll start up. Um, but if you want to look in the console, you yep. love the console console has all, all sorts of good stuff. Now <clears throat> the observation I'm going to make now, when it's waking up from sleep, that, which is different from what Bradley's saying, right? Yeah. As, okay. as I realized I was looking over, but I'm still, and that's why I'm restarting one of my machines here. But typically what you're going to be seeing is at some point starting in the console, you're going to see messages from kernel that describe what's happening. And I, I got to think that there is, if it's going to be an automated method, there's going to be a reason code in there somewhere. Yeah. And again, it should be from kernel. When I was looking at, at uh, the behavior of my MacBook, when it sleeps, one thing it says is when it's waking up from sleep, it says system wake. And then the thing that comes after that, it says, Oh, by the way, here's the reason I woke up. Right. And usually it's lit. Okay. Um, yeah, so, sure. So what I'm thinking is there's probably when the machine starts up, you're going to see a whole slew of messages, copyright and then stuff like that. But you're going to see, I'm going to bet. And that's why I restarted my machine here. And I'm going to log in in a moment because I'm going to hand it off to you. But there, there, I'm going to, I'm going to see what messages come up there that kind of indicate why the heck, uh, at least this machine restarted, but that's where I'd start. Uh, console kernel messages and anything having to do with system wake or uh, uh and i'll probably give you a few more in a few, few all right seconds. so so we will have john's answer after these messages and the messages because i don't really have uh, any other ideas the console would be where i would look too <laughs> is uh is how you can contact us right uh and and so we certainly this show we've had i think we've had all three we've had audio comments uh, that have come in via email. We've had emailed mm-hmm. comments that have also come in via email and then we've had phoned in comments so uh, where do we start? You can phone us at 206-666-GEEK, which is? Uh, I'm going to guess 4335, Dave. You've guessed correctly. We have a winner. Uh, you can email us. At, and again, we said you can email audio comments. You can email text comments. We've had lots of screenshots emailed. We've had a couple of videos emailed. We take all kinds. Uh, and that comes into uh, feedback at MacGeekCab.com. Um, someone emailed me a duck once. Well, that's nice, John. <laughs> Did they email it to feedback at com? No, I think 
Well, if they didn't email it to feedback at MacGeekGap.com, maybe it was duck. That, that, that could have been the problem. That could but have no, been there the is no duck at MacObserver or MacGeekGap.com. I don't think there is. As far as I know. Yeah, not as far as I know. That's right. Uh, and of course, if you're a premium subscriber, you can email uh, premium at MacGeekGap.com and we'll route that to uh, the prep for that show, which we'll be doing on Thursday of this week for those of you uh, interested. And uh, and so, John, that I believe that wraps up our. Uh, oh, you can Skype us to Mac Geek Gab and you can visit MacGeekGab.com for all kinds of information, including links to the show notes for all of the shows, uh, including the premium shows. So even if you're not a premium subscriber, you can see those show notes as well. Uh, uh, for John, no apparent additional charge, <laughs> no apparent additional charge. I'm not sure what that means, but I like it. It sounds good. It's got a good ring to it. John, speaking of things that sound good, do you have anything to share with us about your ongoing experiment with the console? Mm. The silence is deafening. No, I see kernel 64 bit mode enabled. That's nice. I'm not getting a, uh, Nothing. No reason why it woke up. Talking about power management. Now, this is a restart, so I'll I'll have to keep examining. But uh, I'm almost positive it would be under the kernel category if if there's any reason that it wakes up. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, the 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 one thing I would think of is there is the scheduling facility in OS 10, of course, that will schedule a wake up. Uh, It is possible to schedule far more wake ups than uh, than OS 10. Will show you. And well, didn't they say they checked for that? I, well, he checked for it in the user interface. But really, uh, as with many things in OS X, uh, the user interface is nothing more than a front layer to a lot of stuff in the command line. And uh, and Pete is showing me. Oh, Pete's showing me wake reasons, but we're talking about startup reasons. Right, right. Um, and and what I'm looking for now is I know there's a program that will let you schedule all kinds of startups like this. And now I'm vamping for myself to find this. And uh, and let me see if I can find it. I know I mentioned it in one of my recent running your Mac clean, clean and mean things. So I'm looking here, John. Do you have anything uh, exciting to share with our listeners while I'm looking for this? Um. I'm still looking through the kernel. I know there was okay. a power. No, there was a power related message, but no, I think it was part of when the Mac starts up it indicates the power state, I think of the cores or something like that. So that wasn't anything terribly exciting. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't. And I, and I can't find it there. There is something. So what I would try is go into energy saver and turn on a, a wake up schedule and then turn it off hmm. because it's possible that there is something set in there that for whatever reason, isn't making it to the GUI uh, into the interface there in, in energy saver, but is set behind the scenes. So I would go in and turn that off. It, it, there's a is command that- line thing to do it. Um, and, uh, and you know what, you know what here, well, is uh, that a PRAM? Is that a PRAM? It is. And hang on one second because the magic is about okay. right now. Okay. So we, uh, we three geeks, of Orient R? No. Uh, we went and searched for this because I knew there was something in the terminal and I didn't just want to leave everyone hanging. Uh, we aren't we aren't Batman and Robin. Uh, and so we didn't hmm. want to leave you with a wait for next I got week. close. It begins with a P. <laughs> Thanks, John. Yeah. Uh, so PM set is the terminal command that will show you this at, or PM set is a terminal command that'll do a lot of things. We've talked about it before in terms of setting uh, your, your, you know, how long until your disc sleeps or how long until this sleeps or how long until that sleeps. But it also is the thing that schedules startup and wake up and shut down and sleep. So if you want to see what it uh, is set for, go to the terminal and type P M set all everything is lowercase. And that's P M set space dash G space S C H E D the first five characters of the word schedule. Uh, it should, if you don't have anything set in energy saver, it should come up and say no scheduled events. However, if there is something scheduled, then, uh, then you will, then you will see that. So hopefully that answers the question. We'll put a Mac OS 10 hints article that not only led us down this path just now, but, but also includes some more detail for you to, uh, for you to peruse, so I think, John, with that, we uh, we have we have exhausted our geek quotient for the day. And it's time to ride on out of here. I'm surprised the band didn't freeze. <laughs> Why would the you band got one of these? Freeze? 
But you, you didn't get one of these? No, I got the National Weather Service. Freeze alert. I'm not kidding. Oh, yeah. We had a freeze alert last night. I don't think tonight, though. Maybe tonight. Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It was cold, though. It was cold, yeah. Go uh, figure. You know, we've talked about this already, so we don't have to talk about how you want to get in touch with us. No. Like dialing 206-666-GEEK, which... It's 4335. But we can talk about how Michael Johnston, king of podcast renaming, has changed his podcast from the iPhone Alley podcast, which, of course, he had to change when he sold iPhone Alley to the This Week in iPhone podcast, which he then decided to change to We Have Communicators. And he tells us that that's what it's uh-huh. going to stay. We have communicators. Uh, you know, so there's a Star Trek reference in there for those of you that are Star Trek fans. Okay, that's, that's, right. that's edgy. I like that. Michael is the one who converts the show to AAC for us and for you, and he will uh, be on the task as soon as we send it off to him here. Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth for the show. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 and A5 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo, and BB Edit from Barebones Software, PDF Pen, and of course, Text Expander and Text Expander Touch from Smile on My Mac. Notebook from Circus Ponies and go to Assist Express at gotoassist.com slash gab for your one month free trial. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. That's it. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. Run, run, run. I'm done. But why are you running, Dave? <laughs> he doesn't want to get caught. That's right. <laughs> now, what do we say? Run faster.